0: Hello, this is the Vanguard Court Watch podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Right now, Vanguard Court Watch operates in three counties in California, including San Francisco and Sacramento. Our goal is to shine a light on ordinary injustice in the court system. This podcast is hoping to go a step further and shine a spotlight on criminal justice reforms on a national level. Today, we have civil rights attorney John Burris on our show. His book, Blue Versus Black, is now about 20 years old, but when I got started, it was highly influential in my thinking. Here's an excerpt from the book. It takes a lot to make a grown man cry. I'm talking about the kind of tears that are churned up in the face of brutality and ignorance. Tears that originate somewhere deep in a man's gut. After he has been beaten down and humiliated in front of his children, It's a hard thing to watch. As a civil rights attorney, the abuse of dignity is my daily fare. So I've witnessed that crying more times than I can count. With blacks, Hispanics, Asians, even whites. No single race can lay sole claim to the experience of humiliation. But mostly I've seen it with blacks. We don't like to hear it and we don't want to believe it. But there's still an element in our society that feels a need to bring the black man down. When that element wears the shield of law, the consequences can reverberate across generations, leaving permanent scars. John Hill Burris has practiced civil rights for almost 40 years with his primary focus on police brutality and reform. Among the clients he has represented, Rodney King, Oscar Grant, Joseph Mann and Nandy Kane out of Sacramento, Mario Woods out of San Francisco, Tupac Shakur, and many others. Most recently, Burris litigated important Sacramento cases that preceded the recent passing of SB 1421, a state bill in California that now requires police agencies to wear body camera and video footage of officers' use of force to the public after shootings and when a person is seriously injured. So we're going to welcome to the show John Burris.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, good to be with you, David, as always.
0: Good, and I wanted to ask you about some of the recent cases that you've been involved in. Uh, So one of them being uh, Willie McCoy out of Vallejo. Can you tell us about that case?
1: Yeah, this is a very uh, heart-wrenching and horrible case where Willie McCoy, a uh, young African-American man, 20 years old or thereabouts, uh, a rapper, um, a budding career, uh, fell asleep, or we believe, or unconscious while he was at a fast food restaurant. And while there, uh, unconscious, uh, he had a, what appeared to be a firearm in his lap. The police uh, were called and tried to awaken him. Uh, by shouting and demanding and a kind of way to awaken him, but he never responded. After a few minutes, when he, in fact, uh, made, made what appeared to be an involuntary move, such as, like, scratching his right shoulder, uh, that the police, for whatever reason, opened fire on him. Six officers dis- discharged their weapons, firing 55 times, and ultimately killing Mr. McCoy. This case has spurned outrage, uh, in, the, in the community, as rightly it should, because in large measure, Willie McCoy was not a danger to anyone else at the time he was being shot and killed. And the tactics employed by the police were uh, uh, not proper in the sense that they didn't try to awaken him in ways where they were secure or in a position of safety. What they did was r- rouse the person out of his sleep and he's trying to wake up. They didn't shoot and kill him. He never was given an opportunity uh, to orient himself as to where he was and what was going on. A horrible case. Now, I will say this this case, uh, Vallejo, has really spurned us uh, to look at Vallejo, the uh, police department, in a much different light, in a closer vein, because Willie McCoy's case was just one of maybe 10 cases I have pending against the city of Vallejo, and which raises the question about the type of practice constitutional policing that's taking place within the town itself, and so we're taking a closer look to determine whether or not a pattern practice exists of unconstitutional type policing in the city. We certainly know that deadly force is readily used, much more so than any other city around the Bay Area, and certainly we believe that racial profiling occurs as well, because we have cases where people seem to have been stopped, harassed, uh, for reasons none other than they have to be walking while black.
0: And you're looking to put Vallejo's police department in a receivership, is that correct?
1: Well, we're certainly looking to put Vallejo's uh, police department in a position where there's an outside entity looking at it. It can be a a monitor, uh, a receivership type monitor, or it could be something like we did in in, in Oakland, where we have an independent monitor that uh, would oversee and look at the types of reforms uh, uh, that have been instituted, whether they're in compliance with those. So. Either way, we're saying the BLTD needs to be watched from the outside because the history and practice that they've engaged in clearly uh, has been unconstitutional in many ways and it does not appear to be in any internal constraints or any kind of internal safeguards within the department itself to hold these officers accountable and, and to ensure that the citizens are, are not being mistreated. So. Uh, receivership is one thing, also the possibility of an independent monitor uh, that uh, is also uh, an area that we would like to go.
0: So Vallejo's not the only case you're working on. Uh, You recently got a pretty large settlement out of Sacramento from a a client uh, who uh, was uh, uh, his treatment by the police left him in uh, a vegetative state. Can you tell us about that case?
1: Yeah, this is a case involving John Hernandez. John Hernandez uh, Hispanic male, mid 30s, uh, was um, sort of acting out, if you will, acting in a kind of a vagrant manner uh, in the city of Sacramento. He appeared to be, you know, under the influence of uh, narcotics, actually uh, methamphetamine. So he, the police were called, took off running. Uh, he certainly was fully capable of running. He was caught, and during the process of catching him, uh, the police uh, chased him a number of times. Uh, they sat on him, they, they restricted his blood flow to his brain, and so he suffered uh, an anoxic brain damage. Which means he lost control uh, of his faculties in ways that he'd had before. We've fought this case for a number of years, basically saying that that uh, the department itself were, were improperly trained as it relates to the use of the tasers. They were improperly trained in terms of how to do a positional restraint, the use of tasers, uh, use of batons, and a bunch of other activities that should not have taken place. And as a consequence of that, uh, we ultimately uh, received a, a $5.2 million settlement for him, which is in ways, uh way uh, was helpful to John because he no longer is the person he was before and they he certainly cannot take care of himself. We were able to put money aside in a structured settlement of some kind that would allow him to uh, have money and have good care uh, for the rest of his life. A very unfortunate um, situation. I will say... We've had a number of cases up in the city of Sacramento uh, that have gone on down through the years, uh, and we are looking at Sacramento, uh, as well as the Sheriff's Department. The Sheriff's Department in Sacramento is notorious, and we get calls to, about them routinely. And, in fact, I think we just filed a case last week. Then, uh, we had a case we called McIntyre uh, against the, uh, the Sheriff's Department where McIntyre was having a mental breakdown and started throwing rocks and the, uh, the police would call and as he's uh, running away from the police he ran down the freeway and the police officer chased him down and shot him multiple times in the back at a time when he was not creating a danger to the police officer he certainly was running but he hadn't committed any significant crime and they just shot him down like a mad dog and I'm incensed by that case a young man was early, early 30s but that's what, you know, and on top of that, Inspector General that the Sheriff's Department has, or County has, concluded that the office conduct was wrong. But the Sheriff's Department overrode that, overro- that decision and essentially took the position that what the office did was correct. That's a question of failure of leadership, and that's why it's difficult, difficult to get departments to be in compliance and to hold on uh, in, a, in an accountable way when the chief or the top person in the department basically condones the conduct and supports the officers no matter what. This is what's going on in Sacramento.
0: Yeah, it was a real eye-opening experience. I was in the uh, Sacramento jail um, a couple years ago for, for their jail court, and every single person I talked to, told me a story, personal story, of either being beaten up by the Sacramento police or by the Sacramento Sheriff's Department. So it, it is an amazing thing. Um, and so I was going to ask you also about the Brandon Smith case, which is also out of
1: Sacramento. Well, we just filed a Brandon Smith case and against the Sheriff's Department. And that, that's a case that looks like it's a failure to provide medical treatment in a timely way. Uh, this is a young man who was having real problems, I think, in the midst of a, an intoxication overload. And, and, and the issue was, should he have been taken properly to the police? Should he have been taken to the medical facility versus uh, rode around in the backseat of a car, uh, uh, taken to jail? It was as if the police gave no real consideration to the, the, the uh, symptoms that he manifested. Under the law, that uh, you, police do have a responsibility uh, when they take someone into custody to make sure that they receive the proper medical attention and that, that attention is given as, as soon as possible. Here, we're concerned is that because they didn't give it a lot of attention initially, that uh, they sort of thought he was uh, uh, not as serious as he was. And they rode him around in the back of the car, going to different places. And ultimately, ultimately, when they got into the jail, he was dying. So that's one failure to provide adequate medical treatment uh, at a time. And, and I will say this we we have a lot of different cases they're not all just uh, shooting cases or beating cases we've had a lot of suicide cases where the police fail to uh the custodian people fail to uh provide uh, the proper screening for a person who is suicidal when they have reason to believe it uh we've had uh, in jails a lot of uh, assault cases in jails denial of medical benefits uh you name it we've been involved in cases around the jails so the jails themselves are just another way where abuse can take place because all these, all these people in these jails, they're cops. And the mentality for the inmates can be pretty much the same, uh, particularly whether it's a, it's a sheriff officer or a police officer. If they have the mindset to be abusive, it doesn't matter what type of uniform they have.
0: And then one more uh, recent case. So the Oakland Police Commission, uh, their review of a deadly police shooting ended with a recommendation to fire four Oakland police officers and demote a lieutenant commander. Um, and you represented the uh, family in that case as well.
1: Yeah, This is the Pollock case. And Pollock case is very much like the McCoy case. Mr. Pollock, a homeless man, uh, was sleeping between... Uh, the quarter two, between two houses, uh, basically not creating a disturbance. He did have a gun in his lap. Police called, and they tried to awaken him, and they were not particularly successful. After a while, he finally went and got one of these bearcats cats, big truck and stuck it out front and, and used it as, as a barrier. And then uh, they tried to awaken him again, and, and when he tried to wake up, orient himself, he looked around, and it got and killed him. And the police claimed that he pointed the firearm directly at them when he got up. The video shows contradicts that totally. That did not happen. And so we're involved in that. That case caused quite a bit of stir because the independent monitor that we have in, in Oakland uh, reviewed the file and, and gave an opinion that contradicted that of the internal findings by the Oakland Police Department, uh, the internal affairs section, uh, the district attorney's office, the city attorney's office, uh, the inspector general of the, of the police department all concluded that the shooting was justified and, and including the police chief and so the monitor took the position that uh, given what he could see and what he concluded, that the man never pointed the weapon at any officers and they should have given him an opportunity to wake up before they in fact shot and killed him the interesting part about it is that that officers were recommended for termination uh, the officers the police association has fought it pretty aggressively, And the argument, one of the arguments is that the lieutenant who was in charge of the, uh, the, the activity, who got demoted, was inexperienced, and he delegated his responsibility to a sergeant. And that sergeant is the one that authorized the, the use of the force. And so all of them received some kind of form of discipline. But I will say, this is the third case I've had, aside from Mr. McCoy, the third case I've had in the city of Oakland, where, in fact, a sleeping person uh, has been awakened from their sleep and then shot and killed uh, as they're trying to wake up. So uh, poor tactics really raises real questions about training uh, that officers get on how to handle this type of situation. And fortunately, like, cases do provide opportunities to improve a situation. And so this case obviously has one that has ramifications of causing additional training to take place on how to handle people who are asleep or in an unconscious state without, without waking them up and getting control of them without killing them. So there are benefits to that type of case, and I, and I think that cases provide opportunity. Uh, if the if department is willing to listen uh, and evaluate what has taken place, uh, then they can improve the quality of policing uh, if they're open-minded. Unfortunately, uh, in a place like Sacramento Sheriff's Department, that is not the case. Uh, certainly in the case in Oakland, where I've been involved, with, a, with this consent decree or the no negotiated settlement agreement, there was no choice. They had to comply uh, and, and to make adjustments. But I think smart departments should, in fact, recognize that the lawyer points something out in the case that they should take on themselves uh, to correct their problems without having court intervention. But that requires forward thinking on the part of these agencies.
0: So I want to kind of talk about more more broadly the world of uh, policing and police oversight, Um, and and you've been around for a while and and done a lot of these cases over time. In in your view, what's changed in policing, and more to the point, uh, our focus on police brutality since the days of Rodney King?
1: Well, I will tell you the world is substantially different now, and Rodney King certainly was the first case of national import, a worldwide import where you have to see the brutality of police officers front and center. Even though in the black community where I, I had many cases before, many cases where beatings were not somewhat comparable to Rodney King, although not as completely, um uh, the the community had no understanding and appreciation for that level of brutality. Rodney King certainly uh focused that up. Unfortunately it remains kind of dormant for many years uh in terms of a uh, social movement and really when I got the writer's case, uh, back in the early 2000s, as we tried to work through that case, one of the things I insisted upon, uh, working is getting, uh, the body, body cams and car cams, uh, which, which has in fact been a change, a change agent because there you have, you could see, uh, what has taken place in real time. Likewise, the other important down is the cell phone. Every cell phone now, uh, is a potential reporter. And that also has been very helpful in bringing these matters to the forefront because I think they've a light on it and, and caused the visibility to be apparent everywhere, uh, which we also saw and flowed from the Oscar Grant case when you had thousands of people on a, on a train on, on, on New Year's Eve. They were in a crushed car, all had cell phones, and they witnessed uh, what, happened to, what happened to Oscar Grant. Well, that, that's sort of been the takeoff from then. And, and from my point of view, what it's done, is caused us to highlight these issues around police brutality and misconduct and to really put ourselves in a position where we're possible to talk about some reform issues uh, in a particular situation. One
0: of the things I've noticed since I've been covering uh, courts is really a big change uh, since the Michael Brown death uh, in Ferguson, Missouri. Um, the the jurors are a lot less willing to simply take the word of the police officers. Have you noticed a difference? Uh, I think
1: that's true. Uh, you know, you know, even places that you would not expect that. For example, in Sacramento, uh, a, um, a um, we had a case up there where uh, a police officer shot and killed a uh, a man, a Vietnamese man, uh, and under circumstances where. There was some video camera to show that it did not happen necessarily the way the police did. Uh, the jurors were willing to uh, give us the benefit of the doubt, give, give the man the benefit of the doubt, which would not have happened many years ago. Likewise, they just tried a case down in, uh, in our view, uh, our office tried a case down in San Jose, uh, where a young Hispanic man was shot and killed by the police. The police claimed uh, that he was pulling his gun around and created the danger that the boy was had, had been uh suicidal. Well, the evidence the video camera shows, because there was one, that he did not do what they had done. So the jurors were more willing to be critical if they can see for themselves that there's evidence that contradicts what the police officers have to say. And I think that that's the, 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 the controlling point, as I tell all the lawyers in the office, is that you have to have a tiebreaker and you have to have evidence that contradicts what the officers have said. If you don't contradict what they have said, they get the benefit of the doubt. And so I think now uh, we are in a, position, a better position to get contradictory evidence because of the video cameras, uh, and you know, and, and so jurors are more willing to listen to that now. Whereas before, it would be when I was trying cases back in the 90s, it was tough uh, getting uh, jurors to uh, listen to what uh, the uh, statements made against police officers. But now, with Rodney King and the development and all the other cases around the world that have taken place, people are much more willing. Uh, to listen to those at least on the civil kind, not on the criminal side anymore, so criminal cases against police are extraordinarily difficult to prove, and large measure because because police they don't they don't they can't make the leap from a, a basic event taking place where it may become situational, and a police officer to kill someone to make that criminal unless unless you can see something that is uh, is um so beyond the pale. For example, the case in South Carolina, the young man was running from the police, cop chasing him down and shot him in the back. Uh, well, that's a different situation, but most situations are not that. And so it's very difficult for jurors to want to hold police accountable in a criminal case. They are much more willing, of course, to be critical uh, on the civil case. It's where we are, and so we know we can get some redress um, um, from them. That's not always satisfactory, uh, but uh, it is a place to go, at least you can hold the department accountable. If you can win the, the, the liability side, then you can take a real close look at the reform side, which is what I'm planning to do, uh, in, um, in Vallejo. Likewise, we did in Nanny Cain's case. You know, in Nanny Cain's, uh, what we were able to do, uh, once we established that the beating was wrong and, and uh, and that the, uh, jaywalking, was, that there's a pattern that exists within the department of stopping African Americans for jaywalking. We are able to get the department to start gathering statistical data around this, and also to do some training uh, uh, on the whole issues of uh, of race and the issues of of, of the type of force and in, in the communications with the individuals. The procedural justice concept was implemented. That happened before the Stephen Clark case came. And then Stephen Clark, uh, Stephen Clark, what happened there is that the DOJ came in and, and did a complete study. We have had a number of cases where I've, I've had the DOJ come in and, uh, and do the work. Uh, you know, for example, in, in San Francisco, I'm the one that wrote the letter, uh, to the DOJ requesting that they, uh, get involved. They did. In Salinas, we got the same thing in Salinas. Uh, they got involved. Um, and, uh, there's a couple other places I've gotten involved. I've sent letters, many letters, uh, to the AG's office, uh, before. Now, Obviously, those would happen during the Obama administration where there was some receptivity to what we were trying to get done because they themselves initiated a lot of consent degrees and, and, and evaluations, which other departments, which, which, which is not being done uh, in the present administration. So uh, it has had to take another look, another process presently, but opportunities are there uh, under the law 14140, 1441 uh, is a, a federal statute. It allows for the DOJ to come in and investigate a department. Um, so, 14141 here, yeah. uh, investigate a department, which is a very significant statute that came about during the Clinton administration. It's been very effective, at least up until now, uh, up until the, until the Bush up until the Trump administration, has been very effective in, in holding departments accountable.
0: So, I was wondering over the years. Um, which client's outcome were you most um, angry about?
1: Oh, that's a very good question. I, uh, I can't think of, uh, right now, right offhand, I mean, angry in terms of uh, the outrageous nature of the police conduct, that's many. I can't say most. I'm pretty angry when young people's lives are taken wrongfully. Uh, and I'm in the moment when I see the deaths come up or beatings come up with we're unjustifiable you know, I'm pretty outraged by them. And, you know, a more recent one is a case down in, in Waldner Creek where a young African-American man, a boy, 22 years old, uh, had mental problems, reported uh, that uh, he was creating a problem for his mother and father. Uh, they called the police. The police come. The police are told beforehand that he was mentally impaired, that he's suffering. And what happens, the police uh, spot him. The kid gets has a pipe in his hand and he's running. From the, but he's running away from the police and he's running by the police, maybe 25 yards away, and they shouldn't kill him. And I'm outraged by that.
0: Uh, but
1: I, you know, the, the, the uh, case involved William, Willie Willie McCoy uh, it was outraging. Then they have another case down in Vallejo, a foster case, where a man was riding his bicycle and the police stopped him, basically racial profiling, and said, I want to teach him a lesson on bike mannerism. The man wanted to leave. He did leave. The police chased him down, ultimately cornered him in the back room, and then a, con- a, a, a contact occurred. And in the process of that, the, process, the cop shoots and killed the man, shoots him in the back of the head. That's in a cop-generated contact. And in those kind of cases it just infuriated me. Or I had a case that I'm also equally infuriated, I represented a number of African-American men who were being publicly script-searched uh, in, in Oakland. And, you know, to me, it was a form of humiliation uh, that they were having these men pulling their pants down and, and feeling on their private parts, simply looking for drugs, unconstitutional. I was furious about it. I'm still furious about it. And so those kinds of things, uh, where, where you do the humiliation of a person, uh, it can be as minor as a stop, uh, where you're making a person get out of the car, you're handcuffing them, you're only doing it because you can well, you know, or, or you take a person's car and you leave them standing on the side of the street or you call them to get a, a 148 uh, because you didn't like their attitude. All these cases light like, a fire in me that's to be done. So I don't know what's worth. All I know is when I see an injustice taking place, I want to do something about it.
0: But is there a case where you're like, oh, man, I, 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 we needed to get more for those people?
1: Well, I need to get more money.
0: More money or or a better outcome, you know, get the police to now, uh, change themselves.
1: I'm sure there are cases that I don't I don't try to do cases in terms of money. Uh, what I'm really interested in is getting a result for the client, a good result for the client, and not exposing them exposing them to the ravages of a, of a biased judicial system. Which means I may not want to try a case uh, where I think the odds against the person, if I can sell the case and get them some money. Uh, and I want to get the money because I don't want them to be losing. And I also, I've had cases down through the years, I guess, where I'm, I'm more mindful of. If you try a case and a person goes up and tells you to complain about it, and they call the jury and the jury turns their head against you and, you, and the parents is crying. So, you know, that kind of additional humiliation, I, I try to prevent that from happening. I don't, I, to be honest with you, I, you know, once the case is over, I go on to the next case. I don't, I don't really live too much in the, in the past case. Um, and, but I try to get the best I can get for the client before I end that case, even if it means I have to settle a case or if I have to try a case. Either way, I, I, I don't, um, I don't, I live, I live in the moment. So
0: I, I guess I'll ask this question anyway. Um, is, is there a case that you look back on that you're kind of most proud of the work that you did?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. Obviously, uh, the most significant case I've dealt with, of course, is the Rodney King case because that was at the forefront of the civil rights movement. And that was extraordinarily important in terms of putting that case together, uh, against odds, where, believe it or not, the general population was against Rodney King, uh, against us. That, was uh, an example of horrific, horrific, uh, uh, statements and public attention that was very negative. And so that was very, very, uh, hurtful, um, about it. I'd say I if I had to look back in terms of a turning point for me, Early in my career, I was in uh, a case called Melvin Black. Melvin Black was a 14-year-old African-American boy uh, who uh, was thought to have been shooting a gun on a freeway. they moving motorist. The police come. Uh, they, they find him in a location. As he takes off running, they shoot him down, you know, multiple times in the back. He did not have a weapon of any kind. And I was hired at the time to conduct an independent evaluation investigation into this. I was very early in my career. I've been a former prosecutor. And I will say that that case, that once I completed that investigation, it kind of set me on my course to really appreciate that uh, the police, for the most part, are not interested in the truth. What they're really interested in is protecting uh, their image. And so that, that case probably put me on the direction to, to, to litigate these cases and represent people because I also know and so when you're dealing with the police, you're really talking about the uncovering of a cover up for the most part. The police activity is designed to protect the police officers and to present them in the light most favorable, even in contrary to the evidence that might exist. And they clearly will lie about it and, 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 and cover their tracks. So for me, it's being able to fight these battles and represent people and, and force them to have to accept it, whether they like it or not. And, but Melvin Black is probably my first case that really let me know how important this work was. Now, my eye-opening experience, eye-opening experience occurred when I was in law school, uh, back in uh, law school, but I was um, uh, in working as, a, uh, as an associate in a law firm in Chicago where I got a chance to uh, work the summer interviewing victims of police brutality, uh, victims of Chicago PD. And in that process, I got to learn that uh, a lot of people get beat up. It wasn't just a fairy tale that you saw during the Civil Rights Movement. It was a way of life in the city of Chicago. It turns out it was a way of life in a lot of other cities. But it was my sort of entree uh, into the world of police brutality.
0: How do you view some of the legislative changes that are coming down? AB 392 has passed the legislature. It would at least somewhat change the rules for the use of force. Is, is that going to make a big difference in your view?
1: I don't know yet uh, how it's going to be, but I will say that all these changes that have taken place recently, the accountability, the video camera, uh, this use of force and one other, one. I'm going to tell you, this, this is revolutionary work here, okay? This is outstanding political work because I have been practicing law in this area for many years and we didn't have any of these areas and the, the whole transparency of it all has been extraordinarily important. And so I'm, I, I think that even if you don't, even 392 doesn't work as well, as we thought it might. The other statutes, the openness of the statutes, the the, um, putting towards documents, having to do that, the videos, the background, these are are extraordinary, and they will be helpful, and I think, hopefully, will have a deterrent effect on officers in terms of ordinary misconduct. I don't know that it will have an impact on a shoot-don't-shoot situation, because officers then you know that's the situation they make a judgment about whether their life is endangered or not even though objective standards may not support it but all the others collectively i think it's revolutionary in terms of improving uh the ability to look uh, and hold officers accountable society controlled by you know, generous contributions to political people that basically allowed them to hide their misconduct hide their dirty work uh in the background and not have access to it so to me, this is a very, very positive step, and I hope that it will have a deterrent effect on officers in the future. Again, it's a question of accountability within the department itself, and whether the leadership of that department and the political leaders of the town are prepared to hold the police accountable as well, because that's where real work has to take place.
0: One last question. Uh, if you could make one change in policing, what would it be?
1: Well, if I could make one change, uh, I would say the issue around racial profiling and that officers were not given as much leeway to stop people for ticky tack reasons, because that's real. the real humiliation as a citizen comes into play when you are wrongfully stopped and you haven't done anything and you're talked to in a disrespectful way, and whether you live, die, or go to jail, is the control of somebody based upon a very, very minor event. So to me, uh, the whole stopping question, uh, is, is at the fore, at the forefront to me of, of how to, what needs to be dealt with because the humiliation that comes from that, the collateral damage that shows from that, these are the kind of things that affect people's lives permanently, and I really think something should have to be done to prevent that kind of abuse from taking place, and if you can't get it done, then the next thing you do is those records need to be wiped clean sooner than later because that's what people, the real damage that people suffer. Uh, when they have these collateral stops and, and bogus claims by police. John Burris, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Good to talk to you as usual.
0: This has been the Vanguard Court Watch Podcast. I am your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for another episode where we explore the criminal justice system. Next we'll have a author from the University of Michigan uh, who has written a book on uh, the Attica uprising that will be uh, in the next few days.